Last week we began tackling one of the disputations that we find in the book of Malachi, and I posed a couple of questions. Does worship matter? Does how one worships matter? I also proposed a five-question or five-consideration approach to reading and interpreting, understanding prophecy, and we got all the way through one of those questions, one of those considerations, and this morning, Lord willing, we'll get through the remaining four. So we're kind of in the same passage of Scripture that we were last week, uh, the beginning of Malachi, in the middle of Malachi, with an argument that runs through Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. So if you have a Bible with you this morning and you'd like to follow along, I'll be referencing a few verses there. I always like to see your Bibles out and on your laps and you making sure that what I'm telling you is right there in the Word, so feel free to turn to Malachi again, Malachi, the oldest, the last book that is in the Old Testament, and um, so the easiest way to find it is to go to Matthew's Gospel and then flip back. Malachi chapter 1, pretty much 1, 6 to 2, 9. Before we consider the, the word of the Lord this morning, let's do, as is our custom here, let's, uh, let's take a moment of prayer. How grateful we are, Father, for the words of life. How desperately we need them. To know what is true. To know what is right. And you are so kind to give them to us in your word. We open this word now, Lord, with praise, with reverence, with a deep desire to understand all that you want us to. If we need your help, we ask for it now in Christ's name. Amen. So first question, first consideration as we're reading through prophecy, trying to understand prophecy, is what is the transgression? Malachi 1, verses 6 to 7, I think you'll find that there. Last week we saw how the people of Judah were dishonoring God by bringing him lame and blind and sick and stolen animals to be sacrificed in the temple. And that the priests themselves were showing contempt for God. He said they were despising my name by presenting those animals to him as offerings. The Lord doesn't just say this is less than ideal. He says that it is evil. It is wrong. As we get into the second chapter, the continuation of the argument, we find that the priests are guilty of turning aside from God's way. Beyond allowing these unacceptable sacrifices, their instruction has been false. They were not guarding the knowledge of God. Their counsel was causing many to stumble, and they were showing favoritism. The priests were guilty of what we would call spiritual malpractice. Perhaps the most succinct way to describe what's going on here, this transgression of both people and priests, is that God is not being honored as God. That's as simple as it gets. God is not being honored as God. And so as we come to our text this morning, we're sort of moving into the judgment. What is the judgment? What is the consequence? What has happened or what is likely to happen if change doesn't occur? So the question then is, what happens when God is not honored 
as God. Well, understandably, we see, first off, that he is displeased. He yearns for someone, just one person, to have the integrity to stop these vain exercises to put an end to this corrupted worship. If someone, he says, would just shut the temple doors and you, no one would be able to kindle a fire on my altar. Just one person, but no one will do it. And so God says of them, I have no pleasure in you and I will not accept an offering from your hand. The consequence then, when the people don't honor God, is that God does not honor the people. He rejects their offerings. He will not receive them. He will not pretend to be satisfied by the leftovers. He will not pretend to be uh, placated by the unwanted goods that are being brought to him in his temple. And this rejection of their offerings is massively important and massively problematic. You see, the purpose of an offering, Leviticus 1.3, the purpose of an offering is to make the offerer, the one bringing the offering, acceptable to God. If the offerings are not accepted, neither are the people. If the offerings are not accepted, the sins of the people are not atoned for. If the sins of the people are not atoned for, they remain in their guilt. Anyone remaining in the guilt of their sins is separated from the presence of God, unreconciled, deserving, and subject to the righteous wrath of God and eternal condemnation. This is what the Bible teaches. God provided this sacrificial system so that his people would have a way to atone for their misdeeds. But they weren't following that way, and so the first judgment is that the offerings are not accepted. God rejects them. Second, the worshiper who brings such inappropriate gifts to the Lord is cursed. Chapter 1, verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. The person who pledges one thing to the Lord and then brings another, something less, something worse, God calls that person a cheat. If you're reading in the King James Version today, it might say the deceiver, a deceiver. This is a person who, who acts with deliberate cunning. This is somebody, um, this is not an inadvertent oversight. This is someone who's actually trying to perpetrate fraud on God. And the one who does this again is evil. God calls this evil, not just wrong, but evil the one who does this is evil and will pay a price. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. So let me ask you, friends, how do you treat a great king? I know that 250-some years ago, we decided to ditch our king. And, and, and since then, we've not really here in this country had a lot of use for the pomp and circumstance that comes with the monarchy, with royalty, and yet there is something enthralling about that royalty, isn't there? Uh, as many of you tuned in to witness a transition of the throne from Queen Elizabeth and the King Charles, it still fascinates us a bit. How do you treat a great king? In a sermon on this passage, Pastor Justin Dieter wrote this. He said, if a woman would put out her best china for the Queen of England, why would we put out the styrofoam plates and plastic silverware for the Lord? Who should demand our best, human royalty or the divine king? A powerful senator or the omnipotent God? Your boss at work or the Lord of heaven? 
God is a great, great king. The Bible says the Lord is a great king over all the earth. He is a great king above all gods. He is a great king, capital K, over all the other kings, lowercase k. But in their worship, the people are treating God as even less significant and less important than their own governor. And they would never think to bring to their governor the kind of half-rate gifts that they're bringing to God. So God will set his face against those who will not revere him as a great king. And he has especially harsh words for the priests whose job it was to see that the Lord is feared and is respected. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, Malachi 2.2, 2, if you will not listen and if you won't take it to heart, listen now, see how God's correction is more than just behavioral. His correction of this corruptive worship isn't just to get them to, to act the right part. The priests have to listen to what is being said from God through the prophet. But more than that, they have to internalize the message. They have to be, they have to be willing to receive what God is saying to them. They have to understand the importance of honoring God, and they don't. Their problem is more than their irreverent behavior towards God. Their problem is their heart attitude towards God. And isn't that always our problem when we're not acting towards God the way God deserves. Our hearts are out of order. And that's what's happening with these priests. They must change their apprehension and their response to the Lord. And if they don't do that, if they won't do that, Malachi is a call for reform, for them and for us to reform, to, to, to reform. And if they don't do it, what does he say? I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Say, we're in the Protestant tradition. We rarely even use the term or title priest, and we are largely unfamiliar with priestly function of blessing. But blessing the people is something the priest does. It's something that a priest has to offer. We have a form of that in our service. It's called a benediction. And that's what a benediction is, is offering a blessing. It's speaking, it's, it's speaking a good word. God is going to take the blessings of these priests. He's going to make them curses. He will send the curse, he says. And this word send isn't the same sort of understanding of send that you and I, when we would send a birthday card or send a message. It could be translated hurl or let loose. So you get the idea that God is going to hurl this curse. He is going to let this thing loose on these people. Behold, he says, he gets very graphic here, verse 3, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces and dung, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So, so maybe you're reading this and you're thinking, what does that mean? So I want to tell you this, just to be clear, it means what you think it means. <laughs> Some translations say awful. That is O-F-F-A-L, not A-W-F-U-L, but it's both of those things, actually. It's awful, awful. The word refers to the innards of 
the animals who were sacrificed to the guts, to the unwanted organs, and to their excretory contents. The priests are going to perform the ritual of sacrifice. Everything that's not consumed by fire or anything that's not eaten as food would be taken away and discarded, and it would be burned outside the gate. The parts and the portions that remained, they were useless, and in some senses they were defiling. And God says he is going to adorn these dishonoring priests with this refuse. He is going to smear it on them. Which on the one hand would be extremely humiliating to have happen, and on the other would render them ceremonially unclean to perform any other priestly functions. He makes them as useless as the offal that he spreads. Now, we live, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we live in an age of, of extreme tolerance. And we're likely to be uncomfortable with such a graphic description of humiliation and rejection. Even though the scriptures speak plainly of hell, even though Jesus speaks more of hell than heaven and describes it more vividly, the place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die, we squirm under graphic imagery like this. But I want just to tell you, it's meant to offend you. It's meant to cause you pause. Judgment language isn't pretty because judgment isn't pretty. It's not meant to be appealing. It's not meant to be anything that you should want to get along with. And that, in fact, is the problem with these priests. They've lost sight of the fact that this could happen to them. With their faces adorned in dung, the priests will suffer the same fate as the entrails of those sacrificed animals. They will be taken away. They will be discarded. And I want you to know today there are real implications, friend, to rejecting the Lord. There are real implications to rejecting the Lord and not honoring God as God. He will judge those who refuse to honor him as God. That is the judgment, the rejection of the offerings. Number three, are we or could we be guilty of the similar or same sort of transgression? As we're reading through prophecy, we understand what is happening, what transgression has been, has been committed, what the judgment is, and then we have to ask ourselves, is this something that we might fall into? Is this a trap we need to be careful to avoid? Look, you and I are not required, praise God, to sacrifice animals in worship. Okay, and we don't have anybody here whose job it is to inspect the livestock in the temple. No one has the job of making sure everything is okay. So how on earth does this text from Malachi apply to us? In what ways could we be guilty of the same sorts of sin as the priests and the people of Judah? How might these types of transgressions manifest themselves in the church, in church leaders, in church goers today? So I want to just toss this out here, just one op option anyway, that like the priests and the people of Malachi's day, it wouldn't be too hard for us to fall into the sin of sidelining God. Just pushing God out to the periphery. It's not coincidence, I'm sure. Trevin Wax 
through the Gospel Coalition just published an article called The Temptation We Most Often Overlook. And it hits this historic problem of the human condition right square on its contemporary head. He writes about the temptation to live as if God isn't really relevant. And he doesn't confine his concern to unbelievers only. Because you and I could see that. Well, yes, it's too bad that people live as if God is irrelevant. But if you consider that we might also fall into that trap. That's what was happening in Malachi's day among the people and the priests. So he writes this. If you're a Christian reading this, you may nod and think, yes, how terrible it is that so many in our world live as if God is irrelevant. But we mustn't shield our eyes when the spotlight turns back on us. This temptation applies to the Christian and non-Christian alike. How often do I, as a Christian, live as if God were absent? How often does the all-powerful I crowd out the great I am at the center of my thoughts and aspirations? How much of our worship, our gatherings and goings, our service and ministry is done without any real thought to the presence and the power of God? You and I have to be careful not to replicate the careless, thoughtless, one could even say godless worship of the people and the priests in Malachi's day. And instead, we should be drawing near with expectation. We begin our worship in this place with a scriptural call. A scriptural call to worship. The God of the universe is calling you to worship him. He's calling you to his presence. In the words of Jesus, to come with him and sup with him. He's calling you to his holy hill. It is a blessed, it is a sacred act to draw near to God with the faith that he will then draw near to us and meet us in this place to draw near to listen, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, and not to offer the sacrifice of fools, but to come here with hearts and minds and ears that are open and willing and wanting to hear what God has to say. To say week in and week out in this place and unashamedly, Lord, we love you. Lord, we're here because we need you. Lord, we want to meet you. And we want to be changed. We want to be different. We want to be the people you want us to be. You see, it's possible for anyone to marginalize God and to push him out to the periphery. If we are not vigilant, we may find ourselves present in worship in body and absent in heart. The priests of Malachi's day were being, well, they were following some of the rules but they were following them loosely. Worship, though, had become completely distorted. We have to guard against that. Paul tells us in the end times there will be treacherous times, difficult times. People will hold what? To a form of godliness. So there will be a form just the way there was in Malachi's day, but they will deny its power. Again, it's, it's easy to follow the form, to follow the ritual, to check the box, but not 
even to come into a place of worship, desiring to meet with the God you've come to worship. It's also possible for us to do as the priest had done and condone or approve or make, make provision for the things that God does not, accepting as good what God forbids, diminishing the honor of God. And the priests are given the impression all along that this worship thing isn't really that important. But they weren't ready to write him off entirely. I quoted this earlier. One of the commentators says that the people in priests in Malachi's day were not brave enough to turn, him, turn away from God, but were brave, not brave enough to turn away from God, but not brave enough to love and serve him wholeheartedly. It's trying to run that neutral ground. There's nothing really attractive or appealing or compelling or inspiring about a lukewarm, half-hearted relationship with God. There's nobody in your life that's going to look at you if you're demonstrating a half-hearted relationship with God and say, you know what, man, I really want that. It just isn't going to happen. There's nothing inspiring about that, nothing compelling about that, nothing moving about that at all. A dead orthodoxy is not appealing. And that's what's going on in Malachi's day. And that's what's going on when you and I push it out to the periphery. It's just a dead orthodoxy. We're going through the motions. But we're not connecting to God. There's nothing attractive about that. God is not honored by a dead orthodoxy. There's no reason for a dead orthodoxy. This is the worst part. There's no reason for a dead orthodoxy. How could you and I have a dead orthodoxy with a risen, alive Savior? It There's no need of it. That brings us, obviously, to question number four. How did Jesus fulfill or satisfy the requirement that's being broken. Last Sunday we noted how the Jewish sacrificial system uh, prefigured, pointed to, foreshadowed what Jesus would accomplish on the cross. In that Old Testament system, a flawless sacrifice was to be selected, inspected, and offered to God by and in the name and on behalf of the guilty one. The people of Judah had violated God's law by bringing unfit animals for the sacrifice. The priests had violated their office by allowing these unfit sacrifices. How does Jesus fulfill the requirement? Well, let me suggest that Jesus is both a better worshiper and a better priest. Okay? As a worshiper... Presenting his offering to God, what did Christ present? He presented himself, stainless, spotless, perfect, without blemish, and acceptable. He presented himself, not for his sin, for he had none, but for ours, the sins of the world. The worshipers of Judah held back from the Lord. They gave him their cast-offs. They gave him second best. They gave him things that they didn't care about. What did Jesus give? Jesus gave his best. Jesus gave his life. Jesus gave his all. And that's what he came to this earth to do. To give his life a ransom for many. To die in the place of ruined sinners. 
He was inspected, you know. Somebody inspected Jesus. Not someone you would think of. A man named Pilate said, I find no fault in him. He was perfect. And in contrast to those worshipers who were bringing their second-rate stuff to God and with whom and in whom he found no pleasure, what did God say about his own son? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus, already a better worshiper, than the people that we read about in the book of Malachi, but also a better priest. Where the priests of Judah allowed this uh, careless and thoughtless and even profit-making approach to worship, Jesus was zealous for God's temple. You might recall that he drove the money changers out of the temple. Where the priests polluted the teaching of God, Jesus was like Levi. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong came from his lips where the priests of Malachi's day behaved in ways that turned many aside from the ways of God. Jesus ever only showed people the ways of God and invited them into those ways. Where the priests of Judah effectively lied about God's expectations of them in worship, Jesus told the bare truth, even if it would offend people. He didn't say it, it's, it won't cost you anything to come and worship. He said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and come follow me. Where the priest in Malachi's day said, it isn't going to cost you much. It doesn't really matter what you bring. Jesus says, you need to bring everything. It's going to cost you everything. You've got to be willing to deny yourself. You've got to be willing to take up this cross. And then you have to follow me. This is Jesus. Oh, much better priests. And when the priests were guilty of partiality, and we can only surmise from that that they are giving favor to those who are more wealthy or more influential, and they were pandering to that. Did Jesus ever do that? Jesus never did that. The Bible tells us he received as many as would receive him. His arms were wide open. His invitation went out into the highways and the byways of life. But those who would not in, in, take his invitation, he just continued to extend the invitation time and again to the broken, to the disenfranchised, to the poor, to the sinful. He never showed this sort of partiality a much better priest because he received as many as would call on his name regardless of their status, regardless of their strength, regardless of their skills, and regardless of their sins. Where the offerings made by the priests were ineffectual. They did not justify the worshiper. They did not atone for their sin. They were rejected by God because of the spirit in which they were offered. The offering of Jesus, the great high priest, satisfied the wrath of God and the sins of humanity. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 12 tells us, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing us eternal redemption. In their commentary on Malachi, Ian Dugwood and Matthew Harmon write this, Jesus, our priest, 
lifts us from the curse of futility and death that we have earned. He paid for the curse that we deserve for our abuse of his blessings, for our misuse of the positions in which he has us to serve, and for our excessive and toxic fear of people. He does this by himself, enduring the judgments that are due to us. He always walked in fear, awe, and reverence of his Father. His words were always true instruction, bringing life and peace and leading many to repentance. Yet he suffered the curse that we, his failed priests, deserve. He was removed from the temple where he belonged as our holy high priest and treated like the unwanted awful from the sacrifices, taken outside the city gates to a place of shame, defilement, and ridicule where he was publicly executed on a cross and made a curse in our place. Jesus was killed, buried, and placed in a tomb. And we know the offering of his life for our sins was accepted by God the Father because death did not hold him. He was raised from the dead, the first fruits, the pledge of the same thing happening to all those who will put their faith and trust in him. All those who will call on him for the forgiveness of their sins. All those who will call on him for the gift of eternal life. He is so willing and wanting to give you that gift of eternal life. It's yours for the asking. It is yours for the asking. His offering was effectual. In other words, the priest's offerings were rejected. The people's offerings were rejected. They did nothing and they left people in their sins. But Jesus' offering was complete. It satisfied God. It was effectual. It justifies the worshiper. It does not leave the worshiper as the worshiper came. It atones for sins. In Christ, you are cleansed, clean, redeemed eternally secure. Jesus, a better worshiper. Jesus, a better priest. Praise the Lord for the better worshiper and the better priest. Lastly, what changes can we make in our lives that honor our status as participants in this new covenant? How can we change based on what we've read so far? Understanding what the transgression is, what the judgment is, is understanding how we might be guilty of the same thing and keeping in mind how Christ has saved us and fulfilled these requirements. Nonetheless, are there changes that we can make in our lives as a result of what we have just read? Well, let me suggest two out of this text and we'll wrap up with these. I think that Malachi 1, 6 or so to 2, 9 is, is encouraging us to be faithful worshipers and be faithful priests. Because that, the condemnation is toward, toward the unacceptable worship and the priests who are allowing it. I would take out of this passage that something you and I can do is resolve to be faithful worshipers and faithful priests. So we can be we certainly can be, with God's help, faithful worshipers. And we might say, I might say better worshipers. I'm not drawing judgment on your worship per se, but if there are improvements to be made, could we say that we could be better worshipers of our great God? But certainly faithful worshipers captures the essence of what I'm getting at here, okay? Faithful to offer what God requires. Faithful to offer what God expects because he's a great king. And because he deserves it. 
So individually, we can be faithful worshipers when we are faithful to worship. I know that sounds obvious and simple, but you need to think about it. We're faithful worshipers when we're faithful to worship, when we remember to worship. Don't, don't tell me that you're not getting so busy sometimes that you forget to worship. When we remember to worship, when we are faithful in worship, as the word directs us to be. We are faithful worshipers when we cultivate our relationship with God, our awareness of him, of his presence in our lives. And I've talked about life in the context of God, that God is the context for our life. And our awareness of him needs to be heightened so that we can be sensitive to who he is and what he desires. We will be faithful worshipers when the rituals of worship are not drudgery. Now, I understand it. You're 15 years old. You want to sleep 26 hours a day. <laughs> I get it. And somebody says, come on, it's time for church. And you say, oh, do we have to? And we've all been there. But I'm talking about just that, that dis-ease you have to think, oh, it's Sunday, and I could be doing this, that, and the other, but I've got to go to got to go to church. The priests in Malachi say, for them, the ritual of worship had become drudgery. They said it was wearisome. The Bible says they, that they snorted at it. They turned their nose up at it. We don't ever want to be in that spot. We'll be faithful worshipers as we recognize God's worth and, and our desire to come and give him that in worship is what compels us on a Sunday. Or, or not just a Sunday either, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's all through our lives. We, are, we will be faithful worshipers when we recognize what is taught to us in Romans chapter 12, that we are to be living sacrifices. That's a reasonable form of worship, and that we're supposed to be worshiping God all the time in, in what we say and what we do and how we conduct ourselves. We will be faithful worshipers when we do what the old hymn encourages us to do, give of your best to the Master. Give of your best to the master, not what's left over after you've indulged yourself in all other directions. Nothing less is fitting for a great king. Back to that question, how do you honor a great king? How do you treat a great king? You give a great king your best. Our God deserves our best. We are faithful worshipers. We'll be better worshipers when what we offer to God is a sacrifice on our part. We're not just giving him the scraps from our busy lives. We can be faithful worshipers individually. We can also be faithful worshipers as a church. Malachi is written to a community of faith. As we read through the book of Malachi, we really do want to try to make some applications to a larger group, the community of faith here, which would be a church. As a church, we are faithful worshipers when we endeavor week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to offer God the worship that he desires. You know, one of the problems of the people of the worshipers in Malachi's day is that they're offering the, the, him the sort of worship they wanted to give him, not the worship that he desired. So they were offering the worship they desired, not the worship that he desires. So we need to be careful as a body to offer God the worship that he desires. And I'm not saying, actually, that what you desire, what we desire, what God desires are always different. Sometimes they come together and that's a beautiful thing. 
It should be. But we also have to be looking through Scripture to make sure that we're giving God what He wants and not just assuming like we can, well, I like it, so it must be good. Well, that's not the standard. The standard is Scripture. So we want to be, be giving God the worship that He desires more than anything. What does He want? Every week, we are faithful worshipers when we honor Him in the ways that are guided by His Word. We bring worship that is orderly, reverent, filled with truth, Bible-centered, Christ-focused, Spirit-led, proclaiming the gospel. Again, the scorecard for worship is not like a consumer rating experience, is it? I went to the United Baptist Church. I give them four stars. <laughs> I would give them five, but the coffee's kind of strong. <laughs> or weak, or whatever. I don't even know. The scorecard for worship is not that consumer experience, is it? The scorecard is not the consumer rating of your experience. You just never know. When your dissatisfying experience in worship is a life-changing encounter, someone sitting right beside you just had. So you could leave going, I didn't get much out of that. And the person beside you is a wreck because God met that person in that place. So again, it's not about our consumer rating of the experience. Is it the scorecard? Every Sunday is, does the worship honor God? That's the problem in Malachi. The worship wasn't honoring God. So that's what we're evaluating week after week in this place. Are we honoring God in our worship? Is God, you want to leave, was God pleased with the worship that we brought to him today? So applying Malachi's teaching, we see we, we can... First, resolve to be faithful worshipers. We can be better worshipers. And secondly, we can be faithful priests, or we can be better priests than those in Malachi's time. No, 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 you don't need to run right out and get yourself a clerical caller here, okay? <laughs> but I do want you to understand this. If you are a Christian, you, you must understand that you are a priest for God. If you are a believer, you are a priest for God. So there's this heavenly scene, Revelation chapter 5. It's beautiful. I'm just going to read just a portion of it. I encourage you to take some time today, maybe go back and read a larger portion. But in this heavenly scene in Revelation 5, Jesus is being exalted. And here's what John the Revelator wrote. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Writing to believers, the apostle Peter reminds them, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he reminds them of their special status, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
We are all priests, all of a sort we are. And as priests, just like the priests of Malachi's day, our words and our actions represent God. When you think of that word represent, think of it this way, re-present. Present again. That's what our words and our actions do. They represent, they present again God to the world. And that means that we daily, you and I, have this opportunity to show by our lives and by our words how rich and beautiful and worthy is our God. That we order our lives around him. That it is obvious that he is the highest priority. Listen. The neighbor who sees you pulling out of your driveway every Sunday morning, the one you think probably doesn't like you or isn't paying any attention to anything you do, that neighbor who sees you pull out every Sunday morning to go to worship is being impacted. Your visiting relatives that you invite to worship can see how much worship is a part of your life. Your coworkers who watch you graciously handle a conflict or you're being mistreated are seeing God in you. Your fellow students who ask you to do what you might not want to do know that you shouldn't do are hearing in your refusal, in your no, that there's something more to this God than a, an hour or two on Sunday. You're challenging their views with your words and with your actions. You are presenting, representing God to them. In our actions and in our words, all believers are given the priestly task of mediating the good news of God's grace in Christ to the people around us. And there is also a word here, I believe, for Christian leaders. This is the last word. Pastors, elders in particular, probably the closest that we come to um, matching up with ancient priests in terms of their ministry functions. But I want to extend this consideration to all of those who are in leadership roles. Church leaders, pastors, elders, ministry heads, group leaders, counselors, teachers, anyone with authority in the church, okay? And also to Christians who are leaders in the workplace and believers who have leadership responsibilities in their families, to mothers, to fathers, to grandmothers and grandfathers. What we've seen in these early chapters of Malachi is that the leaders set the standard for the people. That's the simple principle. The leaders set the standard for the people. When the leaders compromised God's standards, they made it acceptable for everyone else to do the same thing. That's true in our churches. It's true in our ministries. It's true in our workplaces. It's true in our families. Leaders either advocate for and defend and maintain what is right, or by failing to do so, they accommodate and allow what is wrong. As Peter Adam put it in his commentary on Malachi, leaders set the standard for the church. 
They either rebuke or condone sin. They either model and encourage godliness or model and encourage ungodliness. They either provide a good example or a bad example. So we can be better worshipers. We can be better priests. To be a better priest, we need to be mindful of the sort of example we are setting. So think that through. What sort of example are you setting? Is it the sort of example that's worthy of following? Is it one that upon examination will be seen to honor God's name? Is the example you're setting one upon examination that will be seen to honor God's name? Because that's really the issue that we've been reading and hearing about all through this passage. The people and the priests were thinking and behaving in ways that dishonored God's character, despised God's name. But you and I have been called by God out of darkness to proclaim the excellencies of him. Out of darkness into light. We are the ones that are called not to dishonor God's name, not to despise God's name, but to give glory, to give glory to God's name. Let's stand and sing our concluding.